This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. It is not yours to trade. That justice option is held by the victims of the crimes. They have a right to justice. And it's not for the diplomats. They don't have that right. The right holder is the victims. We feature thought leaders at all career levels, where we explore, among other things, the many contributions that women make to the fields of international business, national security, foreign policy, and international development. Does having women in positions of power influence the outcomes of decisions in these fields? Why or why not? Join me, Dr. Kathleen McInnes, director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies for these incredible conversations. This Smart Women Smart Power podcast is supported by Talis. Hi, everyone. I'm thrilled to be at Washington University in St. Louis today for a special podcast on the road episode. Today, I'm joined by Layla Sadat, a professor of international criminal law at Washington University and a former special advisors on crimes against humanity to two international criminal court prosecutors. Her career is vast and extraordinarily accomplished, and we're just honored to be able to learn more about your career and your insights in this incredibly difficult issue that that you've dedicated your career to. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So as as you know, we love to start with people's, you know, background, their origin stories. You know, what got what drew you to this field of international criminal law? So that that's a good question. <laughs> and I, I ask myself that question sometimes. But I actually had always had an interest in human rights and social justice, and I was thinking about this uh, for another project that I was working on, and I realized that it was actually triggered when I was a university student, and I was a student at Douglas College, and because Douglas was the woman's college of Rutgers University, when I ran for university senate, I was one of the two women students who got onto the university senate. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so they would put, and I was super young because I went to college very young, and they would put all of us on various committees. And for whatever reason, I was placed on the Investment Advisory Committee of the Rutgers University Senate. And the World Council of Churches had come in and asked Rutgers to divest of all its holdings in companies doing business in South Africa. Oh, interesting. Because this is when South African apartheid was really starting to get onto the radar screen Mm -hmm. and the divestment movement had garnered steam. I had no idea where South Africa was. Mm -hmm. I had no idea what apartheid was. I was Mm -hmm. on this committee the chair of the committee was, a, I'm sure he wasn't that old, but he seemed quite old to, me, to my teenage <laughs> self. Uh, and he had a little bow tie. And he said, oh, this is a bunch of nonsense. And I said, well, hold on. I'm going to learn about mm-hmm. this. So I went to the library and learned all about apartheid and learned all about South Africa and came back to the committee and said, you know, Mr. Simon, I'm so sorry, but we have to we have to yeah. do this. This is yeah. really bad. Yeah. Apartheid is terrible. And the committee voted to reject the appeal to divest, and I wrote a dissent. Okay. And that was my first experience in sort of learning about a human rights problem and then trying to do something about that problem. Mm -hmm. And I became sort of 
a celebrity at my <laughs> at Rutgers University at the time. And I, I think faculty and, and those and then actually what ended up happening is we had a day of, of learning about apartheid. I mean, it really sparked a mm-hmm. whole conversation on campus. And so that was my first experience really thinking about human rights and human rights activism. I then became a corporate lawyer and I practiced corporate law for many years in Paris, but I got two degrees, well, three really, two in the United States and one in France. And I practiced international business law, but I never forgot that that feeling of, of sort of law and writing and speaking as a way to address human rights mm-hmm. crises. So I, w- I was recently in Ukraine and was reading up uh, again on President Zelensky's peace plan. The 10-point peace plan, which um, very prominently within it is prosecution of Russian war crimes. I'd love your thoughts on that and how how something like that can can it be a meaningful part of a peace agreement, given that some societies have needed decades to, mm-hmm. to grapple with these things? Or but maybe it's because it's state-on-state conflict that's different. I'm just curious as to your views on that. Well, uh, you know, this came up in the Dayton Accords where yeah. there was a, an effort to bring the warring sides to the table. And this is in the, ba- the Balkans. In the Balkans, yep. right. In the Balkans. And there was a huge push to put the work of the ICTY and the war crimes prosecutions to the, si- to the side in order to achieve the peace, right? Yeah. The idea is we need peace and justice will have to wait. And it was a very significant achievement of those negotiations that, in fact, justice didn't wait mm-hmm. and that there was a nod in those uh, documents to the ICTY and to the importance of the war crimes prosecution. And now the difficulty in the case of Russia is it's a permanent member of the Security Council. So you can't create a tribunal at the Security Council level because Russia won't cooperate. You can't use the ICC for aggression Mm -hmm. because of amendments uh, on aggression that don't allow the court to exercise jurisdiction over non-state party nationals. Russia is not a state party, and so you can't use the court for aggression. You can use it for other crimes. You can use it for genocide, war crimes, and crimes against humanity, okay. not for waging the war. Okay, interesting. So yeah. so, the, so Russia is treated as a different kind of entity. For the different crimes. For the different crimes, okay. What, which sadly is in some ways the fault of the United States because the United States wanted that exception for itself. And guess who's using it? It's Russia. And so we kind of shot ourselves in the foot with that one because Mm -hmm. so worried were we about the possibility of a political or some other charge against the United States for aggression that uh, we've now prevented the ICC from addressing aggression vis-a-vis Russia. So Zelensky has proposed a special tribunal. There's some concern that that could look deeply political Mm because you can't have show trials. Yeah. You're not going to have the defendants. And the, the difference between the Balkans and Russia, in addition, is Russia's a superpower. Yeah. There were mechanisms to actually bring Slobodan Milosevic to the court. Mm-hmm. At first, he was he was taken down by his own people, largely for corruption, actually, not mm-hmm. for criminality, uh, alleged criminality to the war. And so it was actually Serbia that handed him over to the ICTY because mm-hmm. the United States promised, I think it was $100 million worth of loans that weren't going to happen if he wasn't handed over. He. That's not going to happen with right. Russia. 
right. unless you have a change of regime and then who knows what could happen. Yeah. Um, so it, it's clear that indictments of the top leadership are not able to be enforced while the top leadership is yeah. in power. And the, But the peace negotiators, I think, can't trade away no. the justice option because, first of all, it's not theirs to trade. Right. This is a point I've made in some of my writing. It is not yours to trade. That justice yeah. option is held by the victims of the crimes. They have a right to justice. And it's not for the diplomats. They don't have that right. The right holder is the victims. And so the diplomats don't have the right to trade that away. And in fact, most people feel that any amnesty or trade could be undone subsequently anyway, because yeah. if it's not going to be valid in international law, it's not going to stick. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we didn't have such good results in the past with exile for Idi Amin. Uganda's mm -hmm. not exactly a human rights respecting state right now. Yeah. We had Haiti with the exile of Duvalier. You know, these exiles didn't really lead to good things for their countries. Mm-hmm. So I, I tend to be a justice warrior. <laughs> That's my mm -hmm. perspective. Sure. Um, I take a pretty strong perspective on that. On the other hand, there's no doubt that the Russia situation is going to be really tough for the international community. Yeah. You have a, a particularly unrepentant regime that's a serial offender. Yes. We've seen it in Chechnya. We've seen it in Syria, where you see it in Georgia. Yeah. now see it in Ukraine. And so this is a particularly unrepentant regime that actually uses the commission of crimes as part of its method Strategy. of war. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It, it's it's, yeah. it's increasingly obvious to me as an analyst that this is the yeah the Russian way of war now. Um, yeah. The not just the commission of atrocities and violent atrocities, but also things like the filtration camps, separating children from their families. This is. A terrible, yeah. I mean, war is hell, of course, but this is, this is like ninth level, like ninth ring of hell, as you know, as far as I can tell. Yeah, and the cruelty is the point. Yes, right? the cruelty Ter is the point. The cruelty is the point. Terrorizing the civilian population is the point. All the things that are codified in the Geneva Conventions are put aside because to serve the purposes of the state. Yeah, and that's why going back to the R2P. It was a little useless, to be mm -hmm. honest, to have this statement because they never could deal with the hard issue of, but when can you intervene if the state won't do it? Yeah. But it was important to have the General Assembly condemn the crimes itself. Yeah. Because that was, I want to say unanimous, if not overwhelming adoption. And every time the illegality of the crimes itself is condemned in mm -hmm. a treaty in the General Assembly, it underscores that this methodology is just off the table. So mm -hmm. these Russian tactics, Russia can't say, oh, we didn't know this was illegal. They knew it was illegal. It's in yeah. every single treaty. It's in the war crimes tribunals. For goodness sakes, Russia has a judge at the ICTY. I mean, right. you know, applying right. this law. So they know perfectly well it's illegal. So it is important in these authoritative statements by the General Assembly in the tribunals to just keep reiterating, restating, these are the rules. You mm -hmm. break the rules, there are going to be consequences. Right. So returning to you know, earlier in your career, you know, you're in the, the 90s, this golden era of international law, and you become involved in the establishment of the International Criminal Court. How, how, how were you approached about that? 
And what were your views at the time? Well, so in, in the olden days, <laughs> uh, in the olden days, when a young scholar would finish an article, you would send it to the people you cited in the article, in part because you're trying to become a part of a scholarly community and mm -hmm. genuinely for comment. And so I sent copies of my article on the French Crimes Against Humanity cases to a variety of individuals, one of whom happened to be the president of the International Law Association in the United States and said, and he wrote me back and said, would you create a committee to study this ICC statute? And I was like, oh, I don't know, like, how do I create a committee? You know, I was so new. Wow. Yeah. Like, that's a sort of cold out of the blue. Out of like, blue. Okay. Al, Al Rubin says to me, <laughs> you need to create this committee. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> um, and so I was like, well, who should be on the committee? And so I got a list of names from uh, a colleague who I knew. And one of them was a fellow named Sharif Bassioni, and he is kind of the father of the field. Mm -hmm. Sharif was an Egyptian-born lawyer, spoke at least six languages, and had worked on the ICC project in the 50s and the oh, wow. 60s and the 70s and the 80s, right? Yeah, when so... nobody could imagine this. He learned about it from his professors in Geneva, he studied in France. I mean, Sharif was a world citizen. And yeah. when he moved to Chicago, he became the leading expert in the United States on international criminal law, doing a lot of extradition work, right? We had mm -hmm. no international prosecutions, but he was an expert in the field. And in the 1990s, he became one of the primary movers of this project, and he joined my committee. Mm -hmm. And so I got to know Sharif. Again, I had sent him my article on the French <laughs> Crimes Against Humanity, and he became a mentor and a lifelong friend wow. um, because of that. And I'm sure, you know, being Arab American myself, that we had that connection. Mm -hmm. And also, he was just excited to see anybody cared about this field because uh, mm -hmm. there was nobody in the field, really, yeah. a handful of people. And mostly, like I said, they did extradition or they did organized crime or right. corruption. And so I put together my little committee and Sharif started hosting meetings for us. And Sharif got elected chair of the drafting committee for oh. the ICC. So he chaired the drafting committee okay. for the statute. And as a friend and colleague, I he said, you've got to go to Rome. I said, really? So I got accredited. I went to Rome. I'd never been to a diplomatic conference. And I was kind of amazed at what I saw. There was a handful of Americans attending as accredited NGO representative like myself. Mm -hmm. There were 165 states. There were 250 NGOs. Wow. Um, when you registered, they give you a little briefcase that had a transistor radio so you could follow the proceedings online. Mm -hmm. And the entire city is plastered with posters saying we expect concrete results. This was an event. It wasn't wow. just a diplomatic conference. Right. Um, and it's 98, right? So we've already had the Rwandan genocide. Mm -hmm. We have the war in the former Yugoslavia. And mm -hmm. civil society is heavily mobilized. Mm -hmm. And a group of like-minded states had collected that numbered about 60 who were deeply committed to the establishment of the court. Yeah. And probably one of the saddest things about my career is not to see the United States of America in the like-minded group. Yeah. The United States stood next to its allies, but not with its allies. And yeah. for a variety of reasons that would take another podcast to go through, <laughs> I actually voted against the statute right. when it was adopted. Right. So I don't think of myself as a subversive kind of person, but this was, I was standing watching the United States delegation kind of implode 
during the meeting mm-hmm. and was, as an American, sort of dismayed and mm-hmm. disappointed because I think the United States could have joined at that point. I think a lot of the concerns were really overplayed and magnified. And the other thing that caught the United States a little unawares is I don't think they thought it would really happen. Hmm. And I say that because I would speak at conferences in the lead up to Rome and the United States and my colleagues who had been with the State Department said, oh, come on, this isn't going to happen. We've tried really? for 70 years. This isn't happening. And I'm like, guys, I'm going to the preparatory meetings at the UN. I don't think. This is. This I feels like this a transplant in the station. Yeah. yeah. I yeah, think yeah, yeah. this is happening. And so I think the U.S. was, state was caught a little flat-footed. Mm-hmm. Defense was, uh, you know, challenging. Mm-hmm. And Jesse. And Kevin, yeah, I was about to say Jesse Helms. And- Jesse Helms was auditing the State Department mm-hmm. and sent people to watch the delegation. Everyone and- was calling it. The International Criminal Kangaroo Court or yeah. something like that. Yeah. It, over his dead body. Right. his refrain. Right. And again, I think this short-sightedness wasn't, they weren't seeing the big picture, yeah. right? And now that we're looking at what Russia's doing, I think we're seeing a real reckoning with, oh dear. Yeah. Right? The fact that we were putting up obstacles in the 1990s and throughout the 2000s has given a license to kill, right, Mm -hmm. to a regime that's capable of committing the worst atrocities we can imagine. Yeah. And so I think that's that's really, I think there's a lot of sober thinking in state. Don't know about defense so much. (laughs) I know there was a fight about intelligence sharing with Mm -hmm. the court. I think justice is like not, you know, they're going to, they want to put people in jail, right? Justice they do their job. Mm-hmm. So, but I think state has come around. Yeah. Yeah. And I think from what I've observed, the Department of Defense has wrapped its brain around the notion that civilian casualties can have strategically detrimental impact, can mm-hmm. can undermine the effectiveness of your military operations. And so it's a very good idea to make sure that U.S. forces do not and are not perceived as committing any sorts of war crimes, it doesn't help. Right. And and I think they really didn't understand that the court is supposed to deal with the worst cases, not the accidents that happen, not the one-off situations. It deals with where you have, it's not a formal element, but the statute says where there is you know, uh, particularly when there's a policy yeah. within the war crime situation. And so there's no clear threshold, but the gravity threshold of the court, the mm-hmm. fact that it's a court of last resort, that a state can divest of jurisdiction by opening an investigation. Mm-hmm. All of that, I think, should have given the U.S. comfort on paper. Yeah. And now that we have 25 years of the statute existing, I think they can see in practice they should have comfort. Mm-hmm. There's no political prosecution here. Yeah. Right? Right. The UK-Iraq investigation was dismissed. Yeah. That was controversial, actually, because there were mm-hmm. UK civil society advocates that thought the ICC should proceed. The prosecutor said, hey, UK's doing the investigation. We have no jurisdiction. Yeah. So I think the United States can now see for itself this is a sober, mm-hmm. measured, thoughtful institution. Yeah. You know. So to wrap up our conversation today... I love your views on whether you feel your gender has had an impact on your approach to these issues, your interest in these issues, or in the and, or the way that, that you have executed your work on these issues. 
Oh, I think that's so interesting. When I first started out, I was often the only woman in the room or Mm -hmm. one of two or three. And there, the gender, it played a sort of strange role in the sense that on my committee, for example, of, I don't know, we had 15 people. There was one other woman, maybe two. Yeah. And so, but that said, the... I think my colleagues were very respectful mm-hmm. of of my expertise and my willingness to work really, really hard. Yeah. <laughs> so what I would say is that, but I always stuck out a little bit. And what did that mean? That meant I had to work twice as hard. Mm-hmm. I had to parade my work three times as hard. You had to, to put out twice the output to have even yeah. a fraction of the impact. So it was, a, it was a bit lonely. It was a bit frustrating. People recognized my work. Sharif certainly mentored me, but you didn't get that sponsorship, right? Interesting. You yeah. didn't get put into, you know, my chairing of this committee was pure hazard and it took a lot of hard work yeah. after that. And so I think what I saw certainly for a long time in my career is you might get invited to the conference, but you wouldn't get sort of some of the key positions. Like they were picking people for another important position. Interesting. So I think there, the the gender, like you had a bit of a handicap and you just had to work harder. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, plus I had a young child then I had a second young child. Yes. You know, sabbaticals were actually maternity leaves because, really? you know, when I had my first child we didn't even have maternity leave at the law school so like I taught a class went off had a baby two weeks later I was doing seminars what yeah it was pretty bad that's horrible it was horrible oh my god that's I mean for those listeners who have not gone through maternity leave or experienced that that sounds like a hell on earth (laughs) like you're but you're you're barely able to like be in your own body at two weeks much less teach a seminar that's insane What's wonderful now, but we're seeing a lot of backsliding, so it's very frustrating. Uh, It is nice to go into a room now, go at a conference. Half the women are, you know, half the people there are women, right? Mm -hmm. There's a variety of women. There's a variety of of views. And so I think it's much better now than it was. That said, that glass ceiling, that backsliding, that backlash is very present. It's getting to those leadership roles that it's still, you're very much a glass ceiling. Very much. And I really felt that uh, at the beginning of my career, you could just work harder, right? Mm -hmm. And, (laughs) you know, but once you get to a certain level of accomplishment, when you hit that glass ceiling, yeah. That is a much trickier thing. And so I have felt that. So what I try to do is whatever I can do. I mentor a lot of women. Mm-hmm. I have a little project called Women Citing Women because women often see their work used but not cited. Ain't and that, that the truth? Yeah. I yeah. see it all the time. All the time. I'll read something in somebody's article and say, I wrote that. And right. I'll look at the footnote and I'm not mentioned. Yep. And I'm like, darn it. I know they read it. <laughs> right. It, like, it's literally my 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 words almost verbatim. Yeah. Yeah. And citations matter, especially in academia. They matter a lot because people are starting to count citations, right? Yeah. And it's a metric of how you are. So I actually take a look at any article I've written and I try to, you know, check my own instincts. Have I referenced young scholars? Are there mm-hmm. people of color cited? Are there women cited? A lot of times it's also woven into the text. But it literally is just, I just think about it a tiny bit, and all of a sudden it turns out that my article's half women, right? Yeah. In the site. Yeah. It's not as if the work isn't there. It's right. just not cited. Right. 
And right. so I just try to do whatever I can to open up spaces for others mm-hmm. and hope that it'll, you know, be returned. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for everything you're doing and for these incredible insights today and for sharing your 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 career and your life and the work you've been doing on tackling the, the, some of the world's literally hardest problems. Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, or you can follow me on Twitter at KJ McInnes One. Thanks for listening, and join us next time. The Smart Women Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon.